Welcome back to Behind Startup Lines, the podcast that equips founders with the commercial know-how to build viable businesses. Today's episode is a treasure trove of insights on go-to-market strategy, and I'm thrilled to feature not one, but two expert founder operators in Richard Blundell and Paul Watson. They're co-authors of a newly released book, The Go-to-Market Handbook for B2B SaaS Leaders. Designed as a practical guide, this book is a must-read for founders eager to master their market entry. While initially aimed at very early-stage startup founders, they've discovered that founders at all growth stages are reaping the benefits of their advice. Created in a workbook format, Richard, Paul, and their third co-author, Chris Topman of Notion Capital, have consolidated decades of hands-on experience in leading, building, and investing in early-stage B2B SaaS startups. However, their insights aren't confined to SaaS. They're applicable across the entire startup ecosystem. In today's discussion, we'll unpack key topics like honing your value proposition and validating your idea with potential customers. We'll explore the concept of pain statements and delve into the first sales hire conundrum. Spoiler, it's not what you might expect. We'll also discuss the utility of advisory boards in refining your business proposition. Brace yourself for a conversation jam-packed with actionable insights from three seasoned operators who collectively have helped hundreds of founders achieve business traction. So without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome, Paul, Richard, welcome to Behind Startup Lines. Really good to have you here today to talk about your new book. Um, Why don't we kick off with you introducing yourself to our audience, telling a little bit about your background. And Richard, why don't we start with you? Um, so Richard Blundell um, left university in the, um, in the early 90s uh, at the bottom of a terrible recession. Uh, couldn't get a job. Uh, ended up photocopying um, life insurance um, proposal forms at a horrible uh, IFA firm in London. Uh, Realised how much money these idiots that were I was doing it for were making and thought, well, I can have some of that. So decided to get into life and pensions. And that's where uh, I started um, work-wise. Uh, and that's when I um, I met Paul in 1995 uh, and Chris, the other co-author of the book, uh, in, a, in a, a sort of flat, wasn't it, Paul, in London, just off Albert Bridge Road is where we first met. Um, and we decided we didn't want to work for another company anymore, give them half our commission. So uh, we decided to go out on our own. So uh, I think we raised about £5,000 each, which was a lot of money now and a hell of a lot of money back then to sort of kick us off. And uh, we hired an office above a garage in Mayfair, <laughs> of all places, just down from the American Embassy, South Audley Street, opposite the best sandwich bar in the world ever, um, which used to get a lot, lot of business. Um, and yeah, that's that's where we started together. Uh, I'm sure during the course of the chat we'll talk more about sort of where we went but yeah I mean our background originally was selling life and pensions to people we didn't like very much uh, at the time high net worth individuals um, graduated into selling to companies uh, and then graduated into technology at the end of the 90s uh, and been doing tech for the last 25 years. Brilliant thank you Richard. Paul please introduce yourself. Yeah Paul Watson uh, co-founder at Venture. So I left university in the late 80s and I went and I got a proper job actually well I don't know if you call it proper but I worked in a gold mine in South Africa Uh, and my working my place of work was up to three kilometers under the surface of the earth in a space about a meter and a half high and it was very hot and very humid and very dangerous And um, I did that for a few years. I was a geologist, so I was um, supposedly telling people where the gold was. You were falling asleep there, Richard. (laughs) And um, yeah, so I came back to the UK, answered an advert in the paper, and I thought I was going to become a stockbroker. In actual fact, when I took the job, I became a a commission-only salesperson selling selling, um, financial services. And that's where we connect, Richard. Chris and I connect. I was working in the same firm as Chris, uh, and we decided we wanted to do something ourselves. So from there, which was 1995, in, we were, as Richard said, we were selling to high net worth, but then we, we started selling to businesses, and we were selling employee benefits, so you know pension schemes and such like. 
And when the internet came along, we saw that there was a great opportunity to remove all of the paperwork that was involved. So we came up with a concept of connecting HR and payroll data uh, of an employer to the databases of the uh, pension companies, the healthcare companies and such like. And that, that's the, the first business that we created. So we went off, raised some money, um, tried to sell it with some success initially. And then we had a breakthrough when one of our customers, which was Volkswagen, uh, pointed us in the right direction of we were really selling this proposition the wrong way round. We were selling a nice to have for employees when the, 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 the must have, the, the painkiller, if you like, was the, the back end admin that was saving them um, hours and hours and hours. In, um, in, in laborious, boring admin. So anyway, we sold that business to lots of different companies, including Walt Disney and Daimler Chrysler and the London Stock Exchange. And then we had an exit to a company that became called the Message Labs Group, went on a wonderful journey with them uh, with a lovely exit in 2008. I stayed on with the parent company, which was Star, ultimately became CEO when we sold that in 2012. I ran a, a company on behalf of Notion, an investee company of Notion. And then uh, a few years ago, over far too many beers, Richard, Chris and I decided that we wanted to set up Venture. And there you have it. Great. Now, there's a third person for this amazing book that you've written. You mentioned there, Chris. T t tell us a little bit about Chris and, and what he's up to these days. Well, Chris um, set up Notion when Message Labs sold. So Message Labs went on this incredible journey, which we were lucky to be part of from 2003 to 2008, when it went from, you know, zero ARR to about $150 million of ARR in five years, which was extraordinary. Um, and that exited to Symantec in 2008, literally the day before the stock market crash. I don't remember people walking out of Lehman's with boxes in their arms. That was the, the night before the deal closed. So it was that close. Um, and so he and uh, several of his colleagues, Ben White, Joss White, um, Stephen Chandler span off out of that to create Notion, um, which is a European Notion Capital, probably one of the leading European VCs in SaaS. Um, uh, Chris sort of needs no introduction in the SaaS world. He's you know he's sort of been there, seen it, done it, invested in over a hundred companies. Um, but throughout all of the last twenty eight years or so, you know the three of us have been incredibly close and great friends, and it was a natural progression. Um, when we sat down in that beer garden just over four years ago, um, we both felt like we wanted to give, all three of us felt we wanted to give something back to the sector that had sort of treated us so well. That's really where it came from. We're massive believers in pay it forward. Uh, we do dozens and dozens of deck hacks of early stage businesses to advise them on uh, the value prop and their messaging and their chances of getting investment. Um, and we do that for free just because we want to help people out. Um, and it's probably the genesis of the book um, and Chris has to say no to an awful lot of amazing companies every day, right? Um, I think he said no 2,000 times yeah. or something, he estimates. Yeah. But he wanted to do something to help those companies that, that weren't right for Notion, but were still great companies and were nearly the, the finished article. And, and that's really where Venture sort of began, which was, um, you know, you've got a great idea here, but you haven't got a sort of armor-piercing uh, value prop, which is going to make the market sit up. Um, so Paul and I are probably the two active, you know, co-founders of Venture. Um, but Chris is very, very much involved. He loves creating a WhatsApp channel, introducing people, networking people, a big promoter of ours, um, you know, and a very dear friend. And his son is now an associate of ours and is learning the sort of SaaS trade. Uh, so obviously we remember the day he was born um, and now he's working with us. So very much a family business. Yeah. Um, wow. So, yeah, yeah, very exciting. Yeah. And I think the key thing was that, um, you know, we've been through that whole process of startup, scale up, plenty of fuck ups. And it was really the, our thesis was, you know, we weren't brilliant at, we weren't brilliant at anything really. You know, we had a lot of luck along the way, but we've got some real cuts and bruises. And, you know, what we wanted to do was help people gain the knowledge of the things that really worked, but as importantly, the things that didn't, and to avoid those pitfalls, because it saves a lot of time, effort, heartache, money in avoiding it. So, yeah, that's what we've been doing for four years. That is incredibly humble 
for you to say that you did nothing brilliant, you you had a lot of luck. I mean, I, I have this belief that you know, being in the right place at the right time as a market kicks in, in the right direction, you know, you've got to execute, you've got to be able to take advantage of it. But it's, I think the reality of what we're doing here is there is a lot of kind of timing has to be right. And you guys have been there and been lucky enough to ride that wave, not once, but several times. And now you've started to codify that with this incredible book you've just released, which is called The Go-To-Market Handbook for B2B SaaS Leaders. And it's all about how you stack the odds in your favor when scaling these businesses. What drove you then to put it onto paper other than being said, you've got to do this one day? What, what, you know, there's, there's, a, there's talking about it in the pub and then there's actually getting on and writing it. You know, what was the catalyst? Well, I'll tell you what, I, from my perspective, bearing in mind that Richard is the one who wrote it uh, or, or, or certainly wrote the words, um, we, we were in a meeting with some, uh, a company called Grips, an agency that we work with, guys that we've worked with for many, many years. And we were talking about content. And they said to us, do you know what you really need to do? Because you, you know, your methodology is, is, is quite special, but you're, you're struggling to articulate it. You should write a book. So my head says, great idea, it's never going to happen. And Richard's head, in his mind, he's clearly thinking, fucking great idea, I'll start in the morning. And that's literally what he did. Yeah. So credit to Richard. I, I was the one that did the donkey work, but the ideas and the content is all three of us, right? So I was just, I was just the one that put the you know, to put the keystrokes together. But, you know, everything we've we've got, you know, we, we have been lucky. We, we've we been very lucky. You know, we've been surrounded by some really incredible people along the way, and we've learned some lessons. And I think we've been good at, if we've been good at anything, we've been good at never making the same mistake twice. There's there's nothing more frustrating, you know, in work when maybe someone's working for you and you they make a mistake and you go, okay, fine, no problem. The, the, the way to do it is this, this, and this. And then you make the same mistake again. I think that, that that really is, you know, the definition of craziness um, is to do something twice. So I just felt that we had we had landed through the journey we'd been on on a very simple to follow, easy step by step methodology that's not guaranteed to give you success because there's nothing in life that comes with a guarantee other than a kettle, um, as my old manager used to say. But if you follow it you are significantly going to improve your chances of being successful. And we'll talk about aspects of that in this podcast. Um, and it's incredible the number of times you know, every day we talk to SaaS founders who haven't done any of, of the steps um, and have raised money, you know, often seed money, uh, sometimes from angels and VCs. Um, and when we sit down with them, and we say, look, have you done this? Have you done that? Have you done the other? They're like, oh, God, no, sorry. Uh, no, we didn't. And it's like, okay, well, let's just take it right back to the beginning. Let's take it right back to its its grassroots. And let's walk you through. And, and the book naturally fell into 10 workbooks. Um, it, it, it made sense to start with the value proposition. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and testing your value prop, which we'll, we'll also talk about today. We won't have time to do the whole thing. Um, but along the way, as we found our knowledge lessening, if you like, in terms of the sort of middle of our sweet spot and dartboard, we engaged uh, four or five outside expert practitioners in their fields to co-write the workbooks with us. So whilst, you know, we take the credit for the fact that, because oh, I, I wrote it down, but that's just the donkey work, right? The real expertise is in the pages and when you've got someone like uh, Andreas, who helped me write the packaging and pricing product on the software, which is one of the hardest subjects in SaaS, really difficult. No one's got a right or wrong answer, causes a lot of debate. Uh, and when you've got Cam at Notion helping you to write a, a workbook on how to create a great investor proposition, and he sees hundreds, right? I mean, he sees hundreds and hundreds and hundreds a day. It's them offering up their insight that you just can't glean off them anywhere else. And assembling that data in a, in a kind of logical chronological order in terms of of what makes sense to helping you build a SaaS business so i it was part of us wanting to give back it was part of us wanting to pay it forward it was partly because i haven't found a book in the market that is a go-to-market handbook for SaaS leaders written by people who've actually done it and been in the field and I wanted to cover, or we wanted to cover, a huge breadth of information rather than one idea 
that pans out into 200 pages. You know, and you've read the first two chapters and you kind of you kind of got it and there's sort of more justification later. There's almost too much in this book. I mean, you can almost done a book on each workbook. Um, but we wanted to sort of do a, a sort of broad and thin version. And then if people want to find out more, they can contact us or they can listen to the podcast or we do videos and all sorts of stuff on the, on the website. I think it's fair to say we also agonised somewhat over who it was targeted at uh, because, you know, taking our own medicine, you want to target it at your ideal customer or ideal reader. And for us, that was the first-time founder. So there's a huge amount of content for the first-time founder. But equally, we've had enormously encouraging feedback from people who are further through the journey who have had that dawning realisation that some of the fundamentals they need to go back to or they need to revisit or they haven't done at all. So it, it appeals to people in all stages, but we wanted our core persona to be the, the first-time founder. Yeah, I, I think it does that very well. Um, I look at it really as a bit of a field manual if you're going to uh, think about go-to-market and something we talked about the first time we met was that a lot of technical businesses certainly are founded by engineers or product experts, not by commercial people. And what you've created here, guys, is a, a really helpful handbook that covers each of those areas. And I love the way you've done it in workbooks because it's easy to digest. You can jump back wherever you are. As you said, you will have done some. There are other bits you perhaps you haven't got around to doing. Um, so I thought it was a really, really good read. Let's dive into it. Let's talk about some of the, the key uh, themes and topics throughout. And what I'm hoping as we're discussing this is you give us some sort of practical examples of how you did that, either in your own businesses or, or working with some others. Um, you start the book by recommending that teams understand their value proposition internally. And you point out very early on that the, the principal problem with value propositions is that they change over time. How do you ensure that your value proposition remains relevant and competitive in what is today a really dynamic market? Yeah, I think we start with the getting your story straight internally first, because we've done, you know, we've worked with dozens of SaaS businesses, you know, in our consultancy adventure over the last four years. And without fail, when we go into that consultancy, we always find some confusion around the room around the table, we get the whole team together about what the core pain is that their software solves. Um, so we've had co-founders. I mean, it's never come to blows, thankfully, but we've had some very emotional meetings where, you know, the founders have disagreed who they're for and, and, and what they do. Um, and then the sales guy yells out and saying, well, I know we're this, we're this, we're this. and then marketing says something else. The website says something else. And in the corner, you find these fascinating people who are often, I don't know, engineers, uh, solution engineers, pre-sales engineers, very quietly spoken, can often sit through a two-hour meeting without saying a word or being called on to say a word, but don't seem to mind, who actually have the answer. Um, and I think when we were first starting out at Venture, we knew what we wanted to do, which was to help. We knew we wanted to download our skills and our experience and our wisdom, particularly the things that have gone wrong. And that's always been our starting point. Um, and I think what happened, Paul, you'll probably remember this better than me, was that I think you, you said, right, enough. <laughs> and you picked up a pen and you started drawing the value proposition on the wall and said, right, so who's our buying persona? And we put the buying persona in the middle. Um, so the reason why we get it to, to, to we, we get, we create this thing called a pain statement visualization. It's in the workbook. You'll see it in there. There's examples in there. The reason why we do it is if we've got to have any success of succeeding in selling our software to a market that doesn't care and doesn't want to know about who we are, surely to God, we have to agree what we are internally first, because if there's any doubt or any confusion about that, and we project that message onto our customers, because of that, in that projection, the message dilutes. And, it's, and if the customer's confused and you're confused, you've got no idea. So we've got to be crystal clear internally first. Right. And you talk about this idea, you touched on it then, the importance of, of building a visual pain statement. Um, Paul, perhaps you could explain what, what that is a bit more. Yeah, sure. Just before I do, I think the other aspect of the internal creation of this 
is, as Richard said, you get people with different mindsets. You get people, often junior people who are very close to the customer, who've got nuggets of, of uh, insight that, that we've got to lean on. And you've got this dimension of, you've got the optimists that often reside in sales and, and, and often in leadership. And you've got the more pessimistic, more potentially you might call cynical or realistic personalities that you want, you, you need a balanced conversation about what's actually going on. You want to be steeped in reality with the optimism of what, what's, what's possible. But if, you, if you've only got a certain type of person in that room, your confirmation bias is gonna be over off the scale. You're going to believe the things that you're all saying to each other. And you've got to get that balance of people that have got a different view. Much as you might not like it, you've got to, you've got to bring it to the fore and you've got to hear it because we've got to deal with reality. Otherwise, we get ourselves in all sorts of a pickle. Just to build on, on that idea then, obviously the founder's idea will evolve over time. And as it does, all the people that are around you may not still be at the same point of what you think this product is or, or the customer segment it serves. So it's important to do this internal view so that you get everybody on the same page. And to do that, you use this visualization technique of a pain statement. What does that look like, Paul? Okay. Um, so let's think about the reason we do that. Ultimately, we need to go and prove to ourselves that this, our understanding of the pain is, is as we believe it to be. And that how we're going to do that is we're going to test it with people who are um, the economic buyers in the, com in the types of companies that we think have got this, this problem that we want to solve. When we have that conversation with them, we can try and describe the problem in lots of words. And it will be thousands of words. But as we know, a picture um, paints a thousand words. So um, let's, let's paint the picture rather than write all the words. So we're creating a framework that we can then explain to somebody our understanding of their situation as it exists today. And the best way to do that is with a, an animated set of slides, you know, so you build a picture, you have a narrative that explains what your understanding is so that they can consume that easily. And at the end of it, they can say, yes, you're right. No, you're wrong. This is different. That's different. So, so that's the reason for the visual pain statement is so when you test your thesis, you're as effective as you possibly can be because the person on the other end needs to understand a lot very quickly. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and just to visualize that, and I think, Richard, you touched on it earlier, it's really about putting that in the center uh, of the, the diagram and then fleshing it out. Could you just talk to us a little bit about the elements that go around the outside of of that pain statement visualization? Well, let, let's try and use a made-up example. You know, um, you're selling to a CFO who is frustrated that they are um, their business is not shipping their products as fast as they would like to due to the enormous amount of data that comes in the front end uh, and the number of people in his team who's involved in that process. Uh, and then there's a delay in getting the products out to the, uh, the, 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 the end user, be that a reseller or be that a shipping company or be that who, you know, whoever. So their, their central pain is that they're not shipping products as fast as they'd like to, that's costing them money. Um, and, um, and and we wanna break down the reasons why that's happening visually, because as Paul says, a picture paints a thousand words. So you'd start off with the CFO in the middle of the picture, because you need to look at the world through the out of the eyes of the CFO, right? So you need to sit in their chair and you need to think about what's important to them, not what's important to you, What's important to them? What are they judged on? What is in their objectives for the year? And you can bet your life that the CEO has gone to the CFO in this example and said, we need to ship our goods faster because the faster we can ship our goods, the quicker we get paid, the more margin we make and so on and so forth. So to create the pain statement visualization, you put the CFO in the middle and then on the left hand side of the screen or of the board, um, you need to draw up all the internal actors, i.e. the people in your company, the different departments that are involved in getting your product ready to go. And you want to draw in all the processes that they go through 
um, with arrows and different colors and lines and so on and so forth. And, and everywhere you go through that diagram, you want to look at where the process is broken, where it's slow, um, where it could be improved, um, and, and draw it in sort of shapes or circles or boxes or line charts or arrows showing where their process you believe, we're going to check it in a minute, but you believe is broken today. And on the right-hand side of the screen, you want to draw all the external actors, you know, their customers, the shops they sell to, um, the tax man, the, the auditor, the, whoever else is involved in that process. It's very hard to generalize without getting specific on a, on a customer. And again, you want to look at where that's broken and why is it taking so long and where's the time being lost and where's the value being lost. And then there's one key thing in the book, which we pull out, you know, uniquely, I think, that others don't do, which is don't fall into the mistake of just drawing out the business pain. You know, that time and money and those things are, are things that business suffer from. And that's, you know, the core of your proposition. What we encourage you to add, probably in a different color, is the personal pain that this process causes. You know, we've all worked in businesses. We've all worked in organizations where things aren't working. We, we want to be pulling out the frustration, the friction, the embarrassment, who, who, you know, who's getting angry about this? Who's having monthly meetings going, why the hell aren't we shipping quicker? You know, why is your data so bad? You know, finance can't see what legal's doing and the warehouse can't see what sales are doing and marketing can't see it. And you want to draw in all that and understand the manifestation of what this broken process causes the people that are involved in it. And why is that important? Because it could be that personal pain that tips over the balance of getting this software solution you know, sold. Do they want to improve their business processes? Absolutely. Of course they do. But actually, you know, some buyers might say, I cannot sit through another one-to-one with you lot arguing and, and you lot getting frustrated and people leaving and people being embarrassed about how bad we are at this. And we need to capture that because that is the actual heart of the, of the pro- proposition, not just ROI, which, you know, which is valuable but it's only one component part and it's not enough necessary to sell your software. So yeah, internal actors on the left, buying persona in the middle, external actors on the right. A slight aside here, and thank you for that explanation, Richard, is is this idea that when you're pitching to a CFO, it's all about ROI. Um, It's an important element, of course, of making a buying decision, but it's not often the, the key driver of that decision. There's usually a bigger objective that the business is trying to do. And we're operating uh, at the moment in a very uh, tough market where spend is being scrutinized very, very closely. And, you know, how do you, you know, I guess understanding that personal pain points is an important part of getting to telling your proposition, but also it's not just about ROI, it's going to be about what's the strategic impact of actually solving the problem the way that you do with your, your product. So I, I totally align with that. And, and Paul, I don't know if you've got some views on how, how that comes to life in the conversations you're having today uh, with, with customers. So firstly, to, to create this visualization is quite an undertaking. I mean, people should be aware that this can take weeks to get this right because you want, you're going to present it to your prospects or your customers. And you, you want to make sure that they feel that you've got empathy for the problem, that you understand them. And there will be a fair bit of bun fighting going on in the room. So if you can get someone to facilitate it, I would strongly advise that. But it could, it can take multiple sessions to get a picture that everyone buys into and everyone feels comfortable with explaining. Um, and, and you need some, some, you know, clever people to create the graphics so you don't embarrass yourself with um, the type of PowerPoints that we put together. Um, so... Once once we've done that, um, we're going to go and present this to uh, a cross-section and, and, and maybe, Richard, you can go, uh, after I've done this, you can go into a bit of the specifics about this. But um, we're explaining to them our understanding and we, and we want them to challenge us. This is where, you know, we come back to this confirmation bias. We don't want to just hear the things that confirm that you know, our beliefs. We want to hear the things that contradict our beliefs. So the initial thing that comes out of the internal uh, workshops then becomes modified the more you discuss it with um, the, you know, your, the people you're getting the research from. And they will tell you, yes, you've got this bit right, but that bit's wrong, or that bit's far more painful than you've, 
you've described here. That's that's my living nightmare. And that so as you're going through this process and you're speaking to five to ten um, people, probably closer to the ten end, uh, you, you're modifying this so it's a living, breathing thing. And and only after you've done all of your research will you settle on what your pain statement is. And that's because people that are living that pain have told you exactly what's going on. Yeah, definitely. Then you go on to talk about uh, testing that. So you've touched on that there. You're testing it with um, initial uh, sponsors, if you like, who have the pain and you're really understanding it. But then you take it to market and you test that thesis with your uh, potential customer base, which you describe as being really important before you bet the bank on this thing. Um, what are some of the tactics that you found to be really effective in, in doing that, of, of testing the thesis with the, with the live market? Yeah, I mean, they always say in life that there's no such thing as an original idea and that, you know, the ideas are just sort of um, built upon over time. But I do think that the pain statement visualization is an original, is a, you know, original idea. And certainly when we've done talks about this um, at events, everybody's sort of head comes up, you know, to listen, because I, I don't think it's been captured in that way um, before. If it has, I've never seen it. But yeah, the thing about testing your thesis, so you've now got your pain statement, you've agreed internally, this is what we think the problem that we solve this is the dent that we want to leave the, in the universe um, and remember when you get this pain statement right it's the bedrock of everything you're going to do from now on right that pain statement sits in your sales deck that pain statement is reflected in your website that pain statement tells you the why you are in existence that's why you do what you do because businesses want to ship their goods faster that that's the why right how we do it is a story for another day. Um, and it always frustrates me that websites always tell you the how yes. and what they do and not the why they do it. Um, and that's why the pain statement is always a starting point yeah. and, the, and the place to get to. But why in software are we the only industry on the planet that doesn't test its products before it goes to market, before it writes a line of code, before it spends millions on marketing teams and sales teams and raising money and, you know, when we started this four years ago, we were amazed that I don't think anybody we met had actually taken the time to test their product on the market that they expected to buy it. You know, we and by the way, we as you'll know from the reading the book, the very first words in the book explain about how we fell into this man trap, and it's a monster. It's a whopper of a yes. man trap if you don't do this right, because we assumed that we knew more about our customer's pain than our customer did. I mean, imagine the arrogance of that, of going, actually, no, no, we know what's wrong in your business way more than, than you do, right? And it cost us. I mean, thankfully, we got, you know, somebody to save us. But it cost us hundreds of thousands of pounds. I mean, businesses have gone bust on the back of this simple, single idea, which is to take your value proposition and to, I will answer your question in a second, but to test it on you know the, the people that you want to buy it you know if you were in, in pharmaceuticals you wouldn't launch them in fact it'd be illegal to launch a product unless you tested it right um and and you know product yeah. testing and market testing is the bedrock of most other businesses other than software so we need to change that right so the, the mechanics yeah, I, of it are you get yeah. your value proposition together you are you need to find five to ten buying personas that you stuck in the middle of your value proposition. So we, we were doing CFOs, weren't we, at a company that can't ship its products fast enough. You need to find five or 10 of those people, right? Because we need to get inside their heads and we need to find out whether what we believe is true and what we believe is broken is actually true, is actually valid. How, what have we missed? What have we got right? What have we got wrong? How much does it hurt? Are we right? So whether you beg, borrow, steal, ask your mum, Ask your dad, ask your mate, get down the pub. Wherever you do, you have to find or get referrals to five or ten people who sit in this buying persona space, okay? Book them in, send them an email, mm -hmm. ring them up. You'll be amazed how happy they will be to help. Ask them for their wisdom, ask them for their kindness, ask them for their feedback. Uh, I just like to test a business idea on you to find out whether what we think is true is true. Is that is that possible? Um, you'll be amazed that nine out of 10 will say yes. Some will say I'm too busy. Um, but get those meetings booked in. I do it on Zoom. Everyone's happy or, or Teams or whatever, a platform, mm -hmm. because you need to record mm -hmm. it 
because you want the rest of the team to hear it. You want the rest of your investors to hear it. You want to give the business confidence that what you believe is true is true. And you build a question set that doesn't lead the witness, doesn't, um, yeah, doesn't, doesn't right. uh, give them unopened, you know, unopened questions or, or you need to you know, leave open questions. Um, and you are asking them, you show yeah. them the pain statement, you take them through the pain statement. And you're saying, this is the way we think your world is. Are we right? What have we got wrong? What have we missed? Give me your feedback. You need to shut up. You need to listen. You need to watch their body language to find out how important yes. this problem is in their business. Yeah. There are some great tools out there as well to help you do that. And I use a note taker called Fireflies, which um, if you buy the, the pro account records video as well, so you can do that. But what's really cool about it is it enables you to create snippets in the conversation. So when someone says something that's really like, you know, a mic drop moment, I grab that, I save that, and then I can refer to it and, and really useful tools. Um, that's a really good, great uh, example of how we gather that information. Uh, and I totally align with what you're saying around uh, a lot of businesses maybe not testing their thesis enough before getting investment or moving too far down the line. I refer to this as the cognitive bias of smart people, because I've sat in the room with the brightest brains founders who think they know. They think they know what the problem is. They think they figured out the solution and they think they know why the world would want to buy it. And yet startups and the history of startups is littered with millions of failing businesses because they built something that either the world doesn't want or doesn't need, or they haven't found a market for it. And I think what you're advocating, and I've seen it time and time again, my work is you've got to get out the market uh, and and talk to, to the market. Isn't it Steve Blank says, uh, the guy who wrote the four uh, steps, the epiphany, the product book, there are no truths in the building you have to get out and mm. you've got to talk to customers. Mm. So yeah, really good advice. And anything you'd add to that, Paul? Yeah, only that, you know, we've done many of these. Sometimes, you know, you get that eureka moment where somebody says, actually, have you thought about looking at it like this? And you go, oh my goodness, you know, that is gold dust to us. Yeah, people will will really describe you know, some very um, yeah, painful processes that you can eliminate and that, that's always gold dust. But there are instances where someone says, yes, it is a problem, but it's not a big enough problem that I'm going to pay to solve it. Okay, and, and that's, we need to lean into that. That might not feel great at the time, but that could be the saviour of your business or of your money or your family's money or your friend's money who've, who've invested in your business. Don't ignore that. That, that, that. You need to hear that. And if you keep hearing it, then then's the time to think very deeply about whether there's a pivot here or whether, you know, there's, there's just another business, but this, this one isn't going to be the one that you hoped it would be. So that, that, don't try and convince yourself that, this, that these people don't know what they're talking about. They do um, take it on board uh, and deal with the reality. And, you know, and so, sometimes people choose to ignore stuff and that's okay. You know, we're, we're all um, risk takers. Um, but it's important that as a leader, as a founder, that if you do choose to ignore stuff, that your team understand why, because you're asking them to go into battle with you or alongside you or for you. And what you don't want them to believe is that you're deluded and that you're just putting your head in the sand around this. They need to understand that you think these are headwinds that we can overcome um, and that, you know, you'll be at the front helping them to overcome them. So yeah, don't be the, don't be the person who uh, is deluded because it, it doesn't help. Guys, this is really great. And I'm sure that our listeners are getting an awful lot of value out of this conversation. I just want to touch on one thing that came up early in, in one of the workbooks, which uh, I'm fascinated by. And it's this idea of creating what you call customer advisory boards. Um, the question I had really was if you're very early stage, perhaps you don't have many customers or many customers are prepared to join this. I mean, how do you go about building a, a, an advisory board? Can you do that even pre before you've got customers or or is that something that comes much later can you just talk a bit about that customer advisory boards 
If you're in an early stage, you could call it an expert advisory board. And they're probably very similar people to the ones that you've identified as people that you want to test your ideas on. Um, I mean, we did this back in the Message Labs days and we did it quite by chance. But I remember sitting in the room thinking, wow, this is brilliant. And I can't remember who organized it, but we were based in Cheltenham. So we did it at the Cheltenham races, not the festival. It was one of the other meetings. And they booked out you know, a suite downstairs for like four hours and they filled it full of customers. Um, or experts or prospects or anybody that was connected with anybody they wanted to talk to. And they spent the whole session talking about the process and what's broken and the challenges and the problems and the impacts. And you get lots of people across the room interacting with you and go, well, we find that. Or, no, we don't have that problem. We have this problem. And someone goes, oh, yeah, no, we do as well. I mean, that is just such invaluable feedback. But to answer your question, in the early stages, you're just looking for people who've lived this life. You know, and if you can't get CFOs, could you get finance managers? Could you get the next level down? But we need to get people who have been on the scene, who've been in the rooms, who've been in the one-to-ones, who've lived the frustration, who felt the embarrassment, who, who, who are able to tell you, no, that's not the real problem. You're, you're wrong with that. And Paul is absolutely right. Being, getting pushback is gold dust. It saves you thousands in, in, in wasted effort and energy. You know, getting pushback is then exploring that because they'll always say, no, no, that's not the problem. And they'll always follow up with, I'll tell you what the real problem is. The real problem is whatever that next thing might be. The real problem is the data or the real problem is the time it takes us to move between that department and that department. That's where it's broken. And, And you get that kind of eureka moment of going, oh, wow. okay. well, if we just twist our are pitched by 20% and aim it at that particular broken process as the armor piercing message, right? We've got lots of convincers that will come with it, but the armor piercing message is we're going to fix that broken link. Then you stack in the odds in your favor of doing it. So if you haven't got customers, get people in a room, either one-on-one-to-one or together. If you could afford it, give them dinner, buy them beer, take them racing, do whatever you can. But you are... You want them to open their hearts about the particular process that you've seen and that you've been involved in. Is it broken? How does it feel? Give me that feedback. You have to get that before you spend any more money on marketing. You have to know whether you're making a safe bet or a safish bet. I I love that idea uh, about an expert advisory board if you haven't got customers and organizing a little gathering where people will come and they will share and talk openly can really help. I think also if you can get those people to meet regularly, one of the things that I found that uh, customers love to do is they love to be involved in the, the, the decision-making around product development. Now this 100%. isn't to say that they, you're going to listen to everything they say and you're going to be leading on it, but what they love is that they've got sight of it. So if you can create an expert advisory board and talk about, you know, we're heading in this direction, we're developing these features and these products, people will go, no, 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 we don't need that. We need this. Mm. And then you can decide yeah. whether or not you want to do it. It's another form of objection. Have you come across that, Paul, yourself? Is that helpful? Yeah, no, 100%. So when you've uh, articulated the final pain statement, you'll see people's body language go, that's me, that's my world. The next <laughs> step is to... Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, God, someone understands me. I'm going to take this to my boss. Um, But the next step is to say, okay, well, conceptually, this is how we're going to solve this problem. This is how we think we can solve this problem. That's definitely not a product demo. That's definitely not wireframes. That's something that, in the same vein as the animation for the pain, is an animation for the improved process. It's a schematic. It's something that you can walk somebody through and say, well, if this happened here, this would happen here. And, and this would this process make your life easier? And, and again, you'll see their body language go, yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm, you know. And you can play around with how much would you pay for that, but maybe that's a bit early. Um, once you get to that point, say, yeah, my world would be amazing if it looked like this, you would ask the question, would you be happy to help us steer the development of this product? Would you be happy to spend half an hour from time to time for us to come and bounce ideas off you. And I don't think we've ever had a refusal on that because to your point, Phil, they want to be involved. They want to have their part of their agenda high up the priority list, you know, so it works really well. And you ultimately, they're your first clients as well. They're your your first customers on that product. So that's just the way it works. The reason why they do that 
is because you're genuinely solving something that is causing them pain at work, yeah. that they're living every day, that's causing them those difficult ones to ones. They're embarrassed about, why does our business do this so badly? Why, why, why can't we be better? Why have we got rubbish old technology? Why can't we be the best in our industry? I'm ambitious as a buying persona. I want to get promoted. I want to get noticed by the board. I want to, I want to go through my career. And suddenly you rock up. You've taken the time to empathize. You've taken the time to understand. You've shown them a solution. Of course they want you to do well because you're the painkiller and they've got a headache and, and they want to make sure they want you to be successful because you've just come in with the painkiller. And, and, and when you get to that point, it'll be no surprise that those five to 10 people that you assemble as experts will become your first customers, you know, because you haven't sold to them along this journey. You've said, no, 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 this isn't for you. I just want to test it on the rest of the industry. And at the end of it, they'll say, well, why isn't it for me? I am in the industry and I have got this problem. And please, can I be the bedrock? And, you know, this is probably going off pace slightly. But, you know, when, when, we're, when we're SaaS founders, you build a deck and you go to you go to, to your investors, right? And you talk about your your TAM, your total available market is eight billion, and your and your and your service addressable market is you know one billion, and then your service obtainable market is a subset of that. And we go into this in a different workbook, so it's all in the book. Um, and and then you go back to the office, and maybe you get some money, and you're thinking in TAM language. You're thinking in eight billion. Are we going to be the biggest thing? Blah 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 blah. We're going to you know we're going to be the next unicorn or whatever we're going to be, right? And we always say no. Get niche first. Get get into your SOM, your your obtainable market that's immediately addressable by you, immediately obtainable by yourself. Because the difference between a great software business and not a great software business is twenty five successfully launched customers with your process, and we're going to talk about um, sales, I think, in a second, but 25 successfully launched customers equals product market fit, not 25 customers who bought your software. There's a big, big difference between the two. Um, investors think that 25 customers equals um, PMF. It doesn't. 25 customers who've successfully launched it, implemented it, are loving it, are using it, are referring it. And the reason I make this point is because those five to 10 give you, gives you just under half of everything you need to become a successful business. Charge them 20 grand a year each, 40 grand a year each, and you're up to your million of ARR, you know, very, very, very quickly. Um, and that's why this book and this process works so well, because you don't want 200 customers, you want 25 as your bedrock who love what you do. Brilliant. I mean, that's really, really powerful. And there's a couple of things I, I want to unpick there. I mean, one, what you've described there, guys, about the way in which you talk to customers and you find the problem is sales 101. I think this is the, the misconception that people have about sellers. They, they don't always have a good rep, but really good salespeople are really good at articulating problems that they solve. And they're really good at listening. Um, and that's you know, you, that's the beauty of being a founder salesperson, a leader. You don't have to be a natural salesperson. You just have to be a good listener who asks intelligent questions. So you've just described selling 101. But you also mentioned their product market fit. So you've given us an indication, Richard, of what product market fit is from your perspective. 25 onboarded customers. Um, I'm really fascinated by this because there's no definition as to what product market fit is. And there's no way to measure it beyond maybe a simple question about whether or not you would live without our product. Paul, do you have a view on product market fit? I mean, what is it to you? And when do you know that you've got it? I think it varies depending on your model, right? Um, it will be different for product-led growth. It will be different for enterprise sales organizations or sales-led organizations. But the key thing is what Richard said, is that you have advocates. It's, all, it's easy to... Well, it's not always easy, but it's, it's, it can be quite easy to win your first customers um, because you've got close contacts, you know, you've got warm leads, you know, within those organizations, you've worked for them before, all that good stuff. But the real proof point is when there's a critical number of organizations that have bought from you through the full process, from the full sales process, who have implemented and have very strong engagement with that product uh, that will, will ask you the question of, this is great, what else can you do for us? You know, it, it's, that's when you get, the, so, so there's no straight answer is, is, I guess, what I'm coming to, but it's 
the measure is more about, for us anyway, the measure is not the quantity of the customers, it's the quality of their experience uh, and the value that they're receiving from your product. So that's where you should focus, not about just chucking customers in, but on, you know, their, their net promoter score and such like. Um, so sorry, that's a, uh, an imprecise answer, but I don't think there is a precise answer. There's a critical number of heavily engaged well, customers. Well, I think that that's the challenge. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the challenge though, Paul. There's no kind of d- definition here of what product market fit is. I like your idea of engagement. I think that, you know, it's not just, did you buy it? It's, are you using it? And often I see a lot of uh, technical startups that don't even look at the engagement numbers. Um, so I think you've got to track that and see if they're, then I also like your idea of, you know, being asked, well, what else can you do? Because if you're doing well, then they, they're bored into it. Um, my definition is is slightly different. Again, for me, I describe it to founders as, you know, you know, you've got product market fit when the wheels are coming off and the wheels are coming off in a good way. What do I mean by that? Well, you're getting demand, you're getting interest, uh, you're not able to process it. So whether that's inbound interest, whether that's leads, proposals, you can't write quick enough, deals, you can't close quick enough. I mean, that's at one end of the spectrum. But you it's like um, when you meet your partner. Yeah, you, you have this idea of what your ideal partner will be, but you really only know it the moment you meet them. And I think product market fits exactly the same as you only really know it, you've got it when you've got it. But not to confuse that with a subset of the product market fit, which I refer to as user market fit, because that can be sometimes misleading. Would you agree with that? I think there's a real, you know, we've been talking about man traps and, and things that don't you know, aren't done well enough by by SaaS founders, including ourselves. We always, you know, preface it with that, which is there's not an obsession about product usage. And this is the bit I, I again, I don't, I don't un, understand what, why we made the, this mistake. But when you know the answer, it's like obvious. You know, why do what, we will we'll fix that? And it kind of segues fill into the the workbook that you know we wanted to talk about next, which is the sort of when and how to bring on a sales team, which is sort of your, much more your your um your domain than ours. But but why don't we obsess about usage? Why do we sell software, install it, and then move on to the next sale, and then move on to the next sale, and move on to the next sale, without actually taking time to go back and see who's logging into it? And in the book, you'll see we create a graph of usage of value versus usage, right? So who's using it in the organization? How widely is it used? Which bits, which features of the software do they really value? And all of this can be done in the first three months, six months of of going. And you're looking for your customers to say, wow, this dashboard means I no longer have to do this anymore. I no longer have to go in here and look at the Excel spreadsheet and find the row and find the column. And I can give my boss, you know, all the stats they need on the move. It's, it's a game changer for us. It's fantastic. Again, that is gold dust to you because that could then go into your messaging for the next 25 customers, the next 50 customers, because you know for a fact where you're going to save them time and where you're going to save them money because they're exactly the same as the other business that's there. So why don't we obsess about usage in the first three to six months, the first 10 customers we sell 25 customers we sell um, and I'll give you an analogy here about product market fit and usage which is we wrote a book right and we knew we were going to sell 100 copies of it because we we're well known in this space and people will buy it to be nice right we, we, we knew that was going to happen product market fit for us is when 400 people we've never met buy the book and then when they go on LinkedIn and say wow this bit really captured my imagination and really got me you know and there was one yesterday where somebody cut out a snippet of their Kindle that they were on a train and when this has nailed it right I've never met the guy no idea who it is that's when you're starting to get towards product market fit when the customers you didn't know in the first days brand new customers fresh customers are using the product, valuing the product, and feeding that back to their organization and to their peers. And that's, for me, I feel more comfortable defining product market fit when we've got 25 customers who are prepared to stand up in front of another 25 customers at your advisory board, which we've created now, your expert board, and say, this changed my company's life. This took the nail out of my boot that I was walking around with in the following ways and saved me this much time and this much money. And that is why, segueing into the next piece, we think the first person you should hire when you're when you're considering uh, building out a sales team, now you've got some traction in your products, is actually somebody in CS, not necessarily a salesperson, because you need that CS person feeding back those key usage metrics 
which will then give your sales team all the all the bullets they need in their gun to fire for the next customer because they've got actual proof that customers one to ten are using it and gain this value. Yeah, that that is such an incredible uh, insight because often I get asked that question about what my first sales hire should look like, and you're advocating that it's not a sales hire; it's someone who is going to take care of customer success. And customer success we define as you know people really getting every ounce of value out of the product that you've just created because you know otherwise they're not going to stay or they're not going to become the advocates that you mentioned you know they they bought your enthusiasm they bought your excitement at the start of the journey right they they really bought into you as a founder going i can solve this they put the money up it didn't deliver what they said it would it was never used by anybody in the team and they don't renew the following year yeah. and that is that's death to a SaaS business right um, and we've got, we know there, we've got other friends as well. The guys over at Winning by Design, there, Yako and what have you, talk about this idea of making impact immediately the moment that you've you've bought your product. And actually, there's a lot more value in keeping customers and growing customers than there are in acquiring, because acquiring is expensive, time-consuming, and you know it will kill businesses quicker if you can't get those customers in for sure. But it's really how you retain and grow them. So. It sounds like we're all on the same page with this. It's just that we've all lived it in different ways, in different businesses. I'm just going to say that the, the workbook, um, which I think sort of dovetails with the work that you do, Phil, more than probably with the work that, that we do. Um, we wanted to write with Paul Fifield because he is an expert in how and when to buy a sales team. Sorry, to, to hire a sales team. And also comes yeah. from a place of, I know how to do this because I've done it wrong so many times myself. Um, and that's why we love this sort of feedback because yes. it's people who are living living experience. Um, but I was going to say, yeah, that's you know, speed to value is a massively important metric. If your software took six months to install and another six months to start delivering what it said it would, and you're getting up towards the re, you know the renewal time, you you have a challenge. Yeah, right. So you you started with hiring your customer success person. You're getting the uh, the ammunition you need to to obviously continue to talk to other customers. But then you, perhaps a little bit contra- uh, controversially, say that you should your next hire shouldn't be your VP of sales. It should be a different person. And you advocate the use of fractional leadership. Um, why is that? What, what, what do you see the benefit of doing that? The, the challenge, yeah, the challenge with... Um, and we've seen this time and time again, Phil. I bet you've seen this probably more than we have, but we've seen this a lot, right? Which is you're, 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 you're a founder of a SaaS business and you decide that it's time for you to hire a VP of sales or a chief revenue officer. That's your, that's your big decision. You've maybe gotten raised against it and you've done it. And then you do a whole load of interviews. Now, you may well be a technical founder, which means you don't actually know what a great CRO or a great VP of sales looks like because you've never walked in those shoes or sat in those shoes. You don't have the experience of, of doing that. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's just, honestly, you could hire a great CTO because you know your engineering yeah. world and your product world, but it's very hard yeah. to know what a great CRO or a VP of sales looks like, right? So um, anyway, you then do a whole lot of interviews. You might hire an agency that will charge you 20% of their salary uh, to do that. You go out and you do extensive interviews, three months gone. You do second interviews, another month gone. You then find your person and then you decide to hire them and they've got a two-month notice period or three-month notice period because they are already they should, they should already be in another role um, if they're not operational at the moment that always makes me wonder why they're not operational if without going into too much detail but you know they're in a they're in a business they've got to come out of it they've got three months to get out you're seven months down the line eight months down the line before this person may arrive in your business okay and then you hire that person uh, with all god you're hoping everything you've gone all in right and i've done that role I've been that CRO, right? And you rock up and everyone's looking at you like you're, you're, you've got the Midas touch and you're, you know, the world's going to change. Um, and maybe you bring a different culture and maybe you, you bring a different discipline and maybe you bring a different voice and maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. And maybe three or four months down the line, the sales haven't started to happen and that miracle silver bullet hasn't happened. And, and suddenly a year's gone and the investors are saying, well, where's all this money gone? We've paid a recruitment fee. We've paid them a first quarter bonus, you know, because that had to be, guaranteed into the contract we've paid them a ton of money and we're not seeing any results yet all right and i think there's a lot of founders who will find this story very familiar and they've been down this road okay so and maybe at the end they exit 
yes. the business. And then you go back to the beginning again and you haven't solved what you wanted to do. So the reason why we talk about in the book, and this is very much Paul Fifield's world, and I'd recommend you look at Paul Fifield's stuff on, on LinkedIn. He's a genius. Um, and there's a great video on our website of him and I talking about this subject all the way through. But what he advocates is hire a fractional C CRO to start off with. There's a whole industry of people who don't want to go all in who don't want to work full time for people because they don't enjoy it for whatever reason, but are brilliantly skilled at being a, C a CRO, who are prepared for two days a week, three days a week, at very short notice, to come into your business, to set up the RevOps, to set up your CRM, to set up your email, set up your inbound, get your data straight, perhaps start to hire your first two SDRs. They know what good looks like. If they don't work out, you can exit them quickly. If they do work out, you can keep them with you. And for a couple of days a week, they can do all the basic groundwork. They can start getting involved in a couple of sales cycles. They can meet some customers. They can sit with the CS person and say, well, what is it that they're buying? What do they find useful? What do they find it valuable? And for the first 12 months, if you find a good one, and there's a whole websites out there that full of people who are good at this job, who don't want to work um, full-time for somebody. Um, through that 12 months, that should help you get to your first 500,000, 600,000 of revenue. And then when you're ready to hire somebody, because you've learned the rope, and as a founder, you've learned from that person hugely along the way, you're then able to hire your full-time CRO. And it's either the person you've had as your part-time one, or they probably might not want to do it, but they will definitely know the characteristics needed for your business, for your VP of sales, or for your CRO, much, much better having done that job than you would have done in the first place. So it's a lower risk strategy than going all in and blowing a whole lot of money on a CRO that feels like a big gamble. Sometimes it works, but too often it doesn't. Yeah. I was going to say one thing that people, you know, hiring people is always very difficult. But there's, you know, we talked about product market fit. There's definitely a... Um, a consideration to be made for whoever you hire, particularly in sales, about their compatibility with your size and your stage. It's very easy to get. Um, there's some impressive CVs out there that aren't necessarily relevant. So, you know, the, the person that comes in with a very strong enterprise um, pedigree who's worked at Google and Microsoft and Facebook and, you know, all the stuff they love putting on their LinkedIn. Um, you know, they, are, they, they have been working in a very different organization with support coming out of their ears with a brand that people recognize. And they, like you would find it as a founder, like you would find it very difficult to go and work in an enterprise because it would be stifling for you. They will find it very difficult to come and work in a startup. And, you know, so don't, don't be wowed by that pedigree. That pedigree, you know, it, it's often you, you think it's the shortcut because th this guy's done it before. This guy or this girl can come along and, and help me, you know, um, fill all my skill gaps and take us to the next level. It's unlikely. That's a much higher risk than, than uh, applying somebody who's been successful at the stage you are into your business. So, you know, they've got to be... Um, stage, uh, there's got to be a stage fit for, for you and that hire. That makes sense. Yeah, I would totally agree with that, Paul. Um, or stage appropriate hiring uh, in the process. Um, I think the other element to add to that is that just because someone's worked in a big company, the attraction of getting someone maybe from a bigger competitor or a blue chip company to come in and run your early fledgling uh, sales business is is a risk because those people, unless they've experienced it, have never built something from the ground up. What they have been is they've been really good caretakers of established business models. Um, and it's a very, very different task in the early days of getting traction, the sort of traction you need when you go to investors to say, look, you know, we've got customers, we've got traction, we're onto something. It's a very different skill set of building something from nothing. And, you know, it's the work I love doing. You know, I love solving the puzzle, the revenue puzzle of going into these businesses and saying, look, guys, you know, there's, there's a, a market just here to the left of where you're focused that is, you know, really hungry for this and really willing to buy it. Let's go and talk to them and then suddenly hit that sweet spot. But I don't think it's just that market. It's also, you know, what parts of your product are really valuable you know, who, how do you approach those uh, customers? It's all these things that have to line up. And that's the bit that I really enjoy working with uh, startups. So totally agree. 
yeah, really good. I think it's because it's this is more your your world, Phil. You know, in terms of this is what you can deliver to your to your your clients, right? Which is, you know, they don't have to go out and spend two hundred grand on a, a basic salary. They don't have to go and spend, you know, guaranteed bonuses and cars and all the rest of it. They can suck it before they see. They can they can get an expert practitioner to come in and teach them the ropes and teach them the basics. You know, we obsess about getting your data right from day one. The second hire is a RevOps person or a RevOps agency. Get your CRM right, uh, get your data right, mm. get your, your reps emailing out of, out of HubSpot, not out of you know, their Outlook. You know, get, get those processes right. You'll be able to see when they open emails, you'll be able to send attachments, you'll be able to do all kinds of stuff if you build the RevOps role right from the very get-go so that anybody that comes in goes through that process to contact clients rather than any other. The alternative is what we did and everybody else does wrong, which is they wait 18 months and then some sales guy dedicates six months of their life in the evenings to creating a CRM out of Salesforce or HubSpot or something about the customers using awful data that's, that's duplicated and is all over the place when they should actually be selling, right? They should actually be selling your product. Uh, and then they leave and they leave you with a CRM that you've yeah. got no idea how it works and how it's set up. And, you know, so get the fundamentals right. And that's why I we would we would always say go fractional day one, yeah. not full time. Brilliant. Gents, we, we could talk about this all day long. Um, there's a lot in the book. As I said, it really is a, a field manual for how to approach uh, go to market. Um, how can people find out more about you, about venture? Uh, obviously, the book is, is available on Amazon and all good bookstores. Um, so tell us how people can get in touch with you. It's um, venture.team, uh, V-E-N-C-H-A dot team. Um, and on there, you'll find all the workbooks or many of the workbooks. Paul and I have done a video on each of the workbooks to give more background so that if you're not sure how something works, um, I would say a lot of what we write about does need further explanation and further, you know, I could have written Lord of the Rings with everything in there, but we didn't do that. We, we skimmed over the top of most things, giving hints and tips along the way. Um, so, yeah, we're always available. We give our time freely. We give our time full stop. Um, to people who want to talk to us um, and yeah v-e-n-c-h-a dot team and can connect with you Richard on, on LinkedIn as well and Paul same uh, yeah same totally reason. yeah yeah look as Richard said you know part of the reason that we um, we set venture up was to pay forward you know we've been very lucky very fortunate in our careers we've had the counsel and guidance of some extremely talented people colleagues bosses um, investors um, you know, so we, we've been the beneficiaries of that. We're very happy to share what we can. So get in touch and we'll, um, we'll always respond. Great. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, can't wait to start even applying the lessons and new things that I've learned from your approach into the, the companies that I'm supporting as well. Uh, and I wish you every success with Venture and the book. I'm sure this is the start of a, of a new relationship. So uh, look forward to seeing how you grow. Thanks very much for joining me today. Awesome. Thank you very much. What an incredible conversation that was with Richard and Paul. Of course, we've only just scratched the surface of the wealth of topics that they cover in the book, the go-to-market handbook for B2B SaaS leaders. If you found value in today's episode, I highly recommend grabbing a copy. One of the standout features of this book is its workbook structure allowing you to directly access the insights most relevant to you without sifting through endless pages. So if you're looking for a focused, actionable guide to scaling your startup, this book is a treasure trove of knowledge. That's it for this episode. If you enjoyed our discussion, please rate us and share this episode with someone who could benefit from these insights. Until next time, keep building, stay innovative, and let's continue the conversation. This is your host, Phil Guest, signing off from Behind Startup Lines. Over and out.